Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief of Variety. Today, my guest is Brent Montgomery, founder and CEO of Wheelhouse. Montgomery left his job as head of ITV America three years ago because he simply wanted to build a better mousetrap. Wheelhouse is designed to be a content production venture that also includes an investment arm and talent management functions with the goal of working with unscripted TV personalities to build brands and careers, not just one or two shows at a time. It's an ambitious venture that Montgomery is self-funding in part from the more than $350 million windfall that he received over the past seven years after selling his left field entertainment to ITV. In our conversation, Brent shares his vision for how all the pieces fit together at Wheelhouse and why he's excited about working with a range of talent from Hype House of TikTok fame to Jimmy Kimmel. Brent Montgomery, CEO and founder of Wheelhouse. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Cynthia. It's good to uh, it's good to zoom with uh, somebody I actually uh, like at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely preferable than the alternative. Brent, you are about you're just coming up on three years since you left ITV Studios that you were running the U.S. division of ITV Studios. You left that company to plant your flag with Wheelhouse as an independent content producer. Tell me, I guess, let's start, let me start by asking you, um, what was the spark? What was the spark for you who had in the past had created your own company, had had previously run your own company, you sold that company to ITV, you were at ITV for a few years. What was it, what was the spark that made you think what I really want to do is launch a new company from scratch. I'm always curious about what, what what's that spark that gets an entrepreneur going. I think it may not be the most exciting answer, but I think it was a series of sparks. And you know, I started my career out as a journalist, and what that meant for me, I think, was always having that curiosity and and wanting to learn about different worlds. And unscripted television was really incredible for that, right? Like we we had the opportunity to profile people who were really good at a lot of really good things, really different things. And and so, you know, I don't want to say in any way, shape or form, I was getting um, bored with what I was doing because I was loving it. But I also thought, wait a second, we're, we're doing something kind of cool. When I looked across our portfolio of the companies that I was uh, fortunate to manage, the companies in the shows, we had, you know, Fixer Upper, Cake Boss, Pawn Stars, Duck Dynasty, um, and then we had just launched Queer Eye with uh, Scout and Netflix. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really thought, wow, as a serial entrepreneur, is there not a chance to go find the next round of shows like that, potentially with the same type of talent, and, 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 and really do something that people haven't really done on, a, on a, at least a rinse and repeat um, manner of, of investing in, in both their businesses and the talent themselves and really try to launch something that, that it goes well beyond just sort of the typical, let's go make a TV show. But, uh, but, but also to be able to go to a network, you know, I, I mean, to use like a Bethany Skinny Girl or Magnolia with Fixer Upper or, or, you know, my personal experience with Golden Silver Pond with Pond Stars, like 
what what happens if we go locked in arm with with the talent and their business to the network and really figure out a way to where everybody wins together? Um, a little bit like I think venture investing, specifically in Silicon Valley, has happened where you get some like-minded people and and you do stuff together. So that was that was the impetus. Um, and and you know uh, I, I think fortunately. We've, we've tried to follow through. We've had some, you know, early success there, but it's but it's still early days. Three, three years felt um, really. The first two years felt really quick, and then this year's felt like a decade, as you know. <laughs> Get the range of experience there. Can you give me a good, for instance, in terms of something that embodies your idea of not just hey, let's let's put these elements together and do a show, but investing in a company or a, or a talent. Can you give me an example of something that embodies that? Yeah, so, you know, I, I saw firsthand the pawn shop had 75 people a day coming in, and then it had 5,000 people coming in a day. So we really started to re realize that you could, you could do a TV show, or you can just start to insert uh, whatever it might be into pop culture. So think Aviation Gen with Ryan Reynolds and, and you know, what he and uh, his partner George and others were able to do quite recently. So. Um, a, a good example for us, the, the, the one that we've written our biggest investment check into is, is a business called Hydro, which is like Peloton for rowing. And, and that falls under what's called Connected Fitness. Connected Fitness um, has done quite well prior to COVID, has, has done even better during COVID as people you know, are, are working out at home and buying these machines. And, and for us, you know, it was the opportunity to, to really start to connect dots. We had um, a partnership that we were working on putting together with um, uh, Kevin Hart. And Kevin is um, as ambitious as they come. And while our partnership was on the media side, Kevin, you know, is a workout fiend and, and already rose as part of his natural um, workout process and you know rowing specifically is is known more in the Northeast it's no more in the UK um, but it's starting to break through with top trainers in Los Angeles so you know we've we've been fortunate to help introduce them uh, to, to the Howard Stern show and just other things that we think can actually have a knock-on effect um, you know we've sent a bunch of machines to the big name talent and and it's just a way of getting awareness out and so while that well, we're not going to build a show around a rowing machine. Um, we, we could potentially put that in different shows. You know, you could see mm -hmm. people in different shows using it, you know, independent of us or because we helped put it there. So that for us, you know, a chance to be uh, in early on a company that, you know, could be the next wave of Peloton is super exciting. When you started, given that you were, you know, working off of your bank account, when you started, did you, was there pressure to get revenue coming in the door right away? Did you have to get, you know, get some things up and up and running just to bring some, just to bring, get some cash flow going? Yeah, you know, one of our most successful stories to date is our company Chemolot, which uh, of course is, is Jimmy's company and um, run by a longtime dear friend of ours named Scott Lonker, uh, also from CAA. And, and, you know, Jimmy brought um, crank anchors with Comedy Central in, you know, a huge order um, that we were able to launch that business off of. And, and so that was, you know, super helpful. And then, you know, we, we were able, fortunately, to get some quick sales on the, um, at, at our, at our um, unscripted company, Spoke Studios. But we, we assumed it was going to take a while to build out the business. Um, I think we've been... You know, right before COVID, I think things were, 
um, were singing along, and then along came COVID. That, that's got to be heartbreaking for, you know, because I know with a brand new company, you know, three years is like you're just barely getting started. So how, how much would you, you characterize kind of what, what you had to put on hold? What, did you have to scrap any plans entirely? Like, how, how did you sort out through all the unprecedented conditions that, that visited, were visited on this industry in mid-March? Yeah, no, on March 9th, we had sort of an emergency um, senior call. I think it was a Saturday. Um, and we really talked that this was going um, to be worse than, you know, people were giving it credit for. And what did we want to do about it? Um, and we all kind of, you know, put our hands up and said, you know, we want to we keep the team. We want to, uh, you know, double down, you know, and that was really... Um, what came out of that call. And, and, and you know, the, one of the first things we thought of were the youngest people on the totem pole and how this could become for them the most incredible opportunity, you know, and I'm talking about like assistants and coordinators because they, they certainly weren't going to have the, the same level of uh, sort of busy work, uh, or at least we didn't think they would. And, and so we went to that crew and said, this is your chance to become podcast producer or this is your chance to to learn how to edit you know or learn how to shoot a camera and a lot of the mid-level team started to really work with those guys on those skill sets and you know i think that was kind of on the on the on the, the sort of um the fun side on the hard side was you know really we just brought in a couple you know of our senior team who had left big jobs and, and bet on this, this wheelhouse vision and mission. And here we are, now we can't even be in the same spot, you know? And so, yeah. um, you know, the, I, I think we, we suffered from the same thing that all of our friends and, um, you know, competitors did, which was a full stop down of production, uh, full stop down of sales, you know, for a period of time. And we, we made the decision that these COVID type programming, you know, sort of cheap shows weren't going to be where we were going to put our interest. And so, you know, after kind of, you know, really getting um, hit in the face a couple of times, we said, look, let's make the most of this. And, and I do think that we'll look back at this chapter. And I, I think a lot of people would say this and say, you know what, this game, especially for a young company, we, we had a lot, we didn't have a lot of revenue. Um, but we had, we also didn't have a lot of, um, uh, institutional politics or, you know, regimented way of, of running our business. We had the opportunity to say, look, we've had 24 months of being, uh, having our doors open. What are we going to do now? What, what worked, what didn't work? And we, we started, um, you know, um, some of the pieces of the business I think are the most exciting, you know, a, a focus on digital that really we believe will be um, one of the things that we hope to do, you know, uh, be a trailblazer in, and that is connecting these digitally native talent to long form programming. And, you know, we've been able to sell three series um, to two streamers and a cable network with, with digital native talent who've never been on television. And, and um, you know, Hype House being the one that, um, you know, we've, we've talked about publicly. And so for you us- Remind me, remind me, what's the nature of that show? So Hype House, it, it, I guess to take a step back, what I, what I think I've realized during COVID, you know, we've invested in a company called Pocket Watch that has um, kids like Ryan who um, 
uh, reviews toys, this little Ukrainian girl named um, Diana, who have billions of views every month. Billions, not, not like over there, like, like every month. And if you go down the, if you go up the chain and you think, or at least the, if you go back in time, you think about Kim Kardashian and we were all kind of amazed at how fast she built her brand. And then we were even more amazed at how fast Kylie built her brand. And then all of a sudden, here comes Charlotte Amelia and look at how fast she's built her name. And, and then I looked down even further to these five and six year olds who have billions of views. So for us, it was this epiphany moment of if you can find the right talent who will be open-minded to figuring out the right formats um, and will, and find the right network partners who understand a group like Hype House brings 200 million viewers with it as a show. And Hype House was one of these first TikTok houses and the one that kind of broke through first. And um, a couple of young, young guys managed the house and they're just there. Um, they're not taking a piece of, of the other people who bring in. They're giving these kids a platform to collaborate together, uh, which kind of resonated with us because that was much of what the DNA of Wheelhouse was. And so we, we sat with this crew of Hype House kids a few weeks before uh, the pandemic and we're very fortunate to get them to kind of pick us. And I think a lot of it had to do with, we, we looked at each of these kids, not like you would have at, um, not like you would have at the Jersey Shore, or, um, even, the, even, even some of these um, sort of uh, real world type shows. We looked at each one from the very beginning as how do we create a 360 business around each one? Not that each one's gonna wanna do that with us, but for the ones who do. Right. And to us, that became the most invigorated, exciting part of COVID is like we can work with talent who we don't have to go to a streamer or a cable network to say yay or nay. We can actually produce content with these, with these type of people and go directly to an audience as well. So, so that was, you know, sort of exciting, but COVID overall, you know, I think it shows how scrappy, you know, our industry is and uh, you know, certainly the unscripted part of, of, of the industry is, is, you know, we were always scrappy. Very scrappy. Are you in the new setup? You know, the thing that I always hear from unscripted producers is that it is, it, it's, a, it's a very hard market to work in right now, especially in traditional linear TV, because of the, you know, there's so many expectations. Everybody wants shows that look like a million bucks, but don't cost anything like that. And the big, the, you know, one of the fundamental challenges for producers, independent producers such as yourself, is the, you know, the overwhelming demand that the network that commissions your show is going to own it outright. And, you know, I don't have to tell you what ownership means for a company. Are you able in your setup, are you able when, if you go to an, uh, if you go to a, a cable network or a streamer, are you able to have a, have a more, equitable, a more, you know, robust conversation about what you can own, or is it really a negotiation about what is your upside? What's your percentage upside on the project? Yeah, I think, I think the answer is, I think the networks are more open now than they have been historically to that conversation. And they're also, in our experience, because we're bringing in a really sophisticated marketing team, which we call Wheelhouse Labs, one good example is we have a, a new history series with Tim Allen called Assembly Required. And 
you know, we were not getting there on the budget number. And it's not, I mean, you know, nobody loves the History Channel more than, than we do. And, and it, was, it was just the show they wanted and that we wanted and Tim wanted was going to be more expensive than the budget was going to allow. And so we got the chance to work with Peter and David. Uh, Peter runs their ad sales department and, and really go to, go to um, uh, we were able to go straight to brands and talk about some really creative ways um, to bridge the delta or bridge the gap. In, in that budget and I can't remember you know a producer like me a being given access to the head of ad sales B being able to then call brands you know with with those guys and we were able to bridge that gap and, and, and make them a better show so that's that's kind of on you know how do we fight the how do we fight the fight that there's just simply not enough money for a lot of these shows on the ownership piece I, I've seen you know, with a different, um, uh, with the Discovery Network, we were able to go in and actually um, fund a portion, a big portion of the show with a partner. And then they were much more open to um, sharing in the ownership. Um, because, you know, I've always said like, it, it should be like the film business. If we're willing to take some of the risk, we should be, you know, they, I, I would hope they would be open-minded about the reward. Scripted's been around for decades and it's figured its way out, you know, um, and there's so much set, you know, what, a, you know, you can really quickly figure out what a show is going to um, cost. And there's, there's a fringe that's in there to make sure the overhead for those projects are covered and unscripted. It's been the wild west for the first two decades. And it used to be at the beginning, the producer um, would own the IP. There would be a contingency fee there would be an EP fee, there would be a production fee. And, and, and those were all ways to make sure that a, a company could run a profitable business and also build the infrastructure. So show after show after show, you can make those shows. It is now on the unscripted side, um, got to the point where there's no contingency fee, there's uh, no EP fee, there's no ownership split typically. And the production fee is often being shared between multiple partners. Right, and, which is hard, very hard on people. Which is hard, and that's maybe hard to hear from a guy who, you know, has sold my business for a lot of money, and we were making a sizable margin back in the day, but that's just not where it is now. And it's not sustainable where it is. So, you know, when you think about the fact that we've got a ton of people that are required to make these shows who can't live with inside the budget, because it's not a film that, you know, you do a film and you close down and you go to another one. These are ongoing costs for people who are paramount to making the shows. I remember sitting at ITV and having 30 people in the meeting and realizing, looking around in the room, not one of them was on the budget of any of our shows. And yet they were all valuable to making the shows and to making, in our case, 80 to 100 shows a year. So I think, I think it, you know, it, it's, it's definitely, we're, as producers, we understand the hardships, you know, certainly the cable broadcasters now um, and, 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 and certainly the streamers, you know, if they're not having their, the same issues right now, they'll, they'll, you know, as their business grows and pressure, you know, comes on the streamers, you know, these all become realities that we have to be clever. And so for me, it was like, all right, am I going to sit here and really negotiate debate every network over every penny every time, or are we going to go out and, you know, um, build something uh, that's different than the rest? And, 
you know, if, if the show doesn't make money for us, but we were able to invest in the core business, then that, then that's a pretty good outcome for us. What do you, um, do, do you give advice to, you know, people come to you, producers that may have a small company that they're just, you know, that is, is just starting to grow. Do you have advice for people in terms of how to navigate from a business perspective, how to be your, how to advocate for yourself in those, in those conversations? I, I know it must be tough if you don't have, if you're not bringing a lot to the table. You know, sometimes those guys get a lot more love from the networks because they, they, they see these people as, you know, human beings. They see that they're doing four jobs. They see that they're young and, you know, um, and often the best shows come from, you know, young hustlers like that. Um, I, the advice I would give now would be opposite of when I started. Like my whole goal was to retain the best people. And that meant putting people on salary. And, and you know, to my point earlier, that creates an overhead cost that right. in lean times becomes problematic and COVID times becomes, you know, almost a death knell. So I think my advice to those folks is, you know, stay lean for as long as you can, but then, you know, make sure that you're adding, you know, the best people. I think the single best thing I can advise, the single best advice I can offer people is, you know, when you're running a creative shingle is invest in people. You know, and, and what that what that means is, you know, um, it could be that one person, you know, if you've been the development exec and the creative exec, who's going to come in and take one of those two hats from you first. And by the way, they can only be creative and, 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 and run a great shop if they have an operational person that's really helping there, too. So, I you know, I just got off the phone call with with somebody I was talking to about running a bunch of shows for us potentially. And. And just talked about the fact that, you know, you, I value every piece of the production um, process and pie the same, whether you're a finance person, operations person, development person, because if you don't, you know, if, if you're not organized, then it's going to affect your ability to be creative, whether that's in the field or in post-production. So that's a long-winded answer to say, you know, I, I think my advice to people now would be, just hold on and do do it with as you know tight a crew as you can for as long as you can, and then make when you do make those first big bets, um, make sure it's people that you know you want to be in a foxhole with. For as long as there's been conventional wisdom about the streaming business, which is maybe I don't know 25 minutes or so, but there had been you know it's, we started to see a conventional wisdom that that. First, there was, we were never going to see any unscripted on streaming. That wasn't their business. And then a few shows really started to make an impact. And then, then it became, well, there's a certain type of show that works on streaming. Do you feel like those boundaries are, are kind of going away now, given that you're seeing everything from dating shows to like workplace competition shows pop up on Netflix and Amazon is, you know, pursuing some of some bigger swings and it's like, you know, e-commerce meets reality. Do you feel like the streaming arena is a pretty wide open place for you to pitch ideas? Yeah, I, I certainly do now. Um, I think in the beginning, uh, I think we were all kind of, um, you know, holding our breath because there had not been an unscripted show that kind of broke through, you know, and and I, you know, I'm, I'm proud to have been a small part of, of the first one that I think really broke through on Netflix, which was Queer Eye. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what, what that, I, you know, as we were fortunate enough to, to work with Scout, who had done the first, you know, of course, the first one, 
um, with Bravo, we, you know, we really talked about what will this cast look like and, and how can it be current, you know, because, and I think, I think it was Scout or one of the cast said, look, the first time was about breaking the door down, but that was, that was 15 years ago. Now we're in the party. So what do we do now that we're in the party? And we really, you know, our, our casting team who worked for me for forever, I just thought did the most bang up job finding, the, you know, the new Fab Five. And, you know, so to me, once I started to see the casting for those characters and some of the Kim tests, um, I just felt, I felt like we were gonna make a great show. Um, and, and I think Netflix was an incredible partner in, in helping push us to make a great show. Um, and, and so that certainly was, uh, was an eye-opening uh, moment that, okay, something that's non-scripted can work. I, and before that though, we had seen documentaries start to work. And so that mm -hmm. gave us, uh, I, I think some hope, but there was certainly a moment where we didn't know if unscripted was going to work on streaming, even though we thought it would, there was no proof in concept and, and, you know, which made us, I think a lot of us think is, you know, the last 20 years of fad. Um, right. But right. I think now we know that people want to watch real people more than, in many cases, more than anything, right? And that's what TikTok and, and other platforms are, are teaching us right now. Um, I think it's hysterical now because last night I went to watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which was both amazing and scary as hell. Um, <laughs> and I came across, you know, the trending, I, I always like to see what's trending and um, we just had a, you know, alone, this show alone that I was so proud of that, uh, you know, hadn't necessarily reached a younger audience has been making a bunch of noise during COVID, maybe because it's, I don't know, it's art imitating life or other <laughs> um, But then this, this, this tiny show called Tiny House Nation from FYI that we did, you know, several years ago is now trending on Netflix. Like, it's kind of fun, I think. I, so my, my feeling now is, Great content, it belongs on, whether it's Disney Plus, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, um, and, and the audience will tell all of us which stuff, you know, they want to see more of. Yeah, um, let me ask you now a flip of that question. If, if you could take any cable network, set, set aside the cost that it would take, but if you could have any, if you could have one cable network out there, traditional cable network, that you could put under the wheelhouse banner, which one would you choose? Well, my, my first instinct is Bravo, so I can just put all of the housewives like in some epic WWE SmackDown battle. <laughs> but um, then I, I would have burned through, I don't know, eight successful franchises. So I you know I have to say the History Channel, um, just because I, I've had so many shows there and they've been incredible partners. I, I, and I wouldn't um, look to, to replace anybody. I would just look to, to have sort of like if there's an investment committee, I would want like equal green light uh, capability because I've got a few other shows there I think that might work too. But now that's, that, that's the, the channel, you know, I, I tend to like to watch, um, you know, when I'm watching TV as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, tell me, of all the things in your background, all of, all of the things that you did at left field or even earlier in your career or your experience at ITV, what, what do you think really helped prepare you for the challenges and the task of launching this company with its multi-pronged ambition and running it? What, what prepared you for the job of being the CEO of this startup? 
But, you know, it's when, when, I, when, I, when you sell a company, you really start to, you, you start to see what people really think of you, good or bad. Um, <laughs> I, I remember getting calls from a network exec saying, oh, man, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of the business. And I, I love this exec, but I know this exec is on the exact right side of the business. I, you know, my, my entrepreneurial story um, uh, started, you know, 38, 39 years ago. Uh, and it was funny. I, I kind of thought of it as, you know, I built a baseball card business. I was selling. I would buy stuff at Sam's and resell it from wholesale to retail. Um, I had a... You really uh, are a serial entrepreneur yeah. from the days you were a preteen. But, but there was a moment during COVID that it all kind of came back to me that I couldn't, I couldn't, shouldn't take as much credit for, for it as I like to. Um, and I was walking, you know, as I'm sure you and I, like, we've all taken more walks in our last seven months than our entire lives. Yes. And, and I'll do it with my dog, a neighbor, or somebody that doesn't even know I'm walking behind them. But I, I was walking by a, a woman who I've known a bit for a while. She's divorced. And I saw her mowing her own lawn. And... You know, um, and this woman, she works full time. She's got, you know, multiple kids. And I, and I just thought, man, that's what parents do. That's what moms do. And when, when I came home and it never hit me that the, the, the sort of moment for me was in third grade, I came home and my father handed me uh, a push lawnmower. And probably most of the people listening, which is probably not that many, and they're all listening to you, not me, but they wouldn't know a push lawnmower has no engine. Right. So it's just got, you are the engine. Yeah. You're the, yeah. And, and so i never worked so hard in my life. And afterwards I'm like, I never want to do this again. And my dad says, well, you only have, you know, nine more years until you're out of high school. And so that, that gave me a little bit of a work ethic. And ultimately I decided it was more fun to be paid to mow the lawn. And that started my lawn mowing business, which led to a couple of the others. So, um, I, my point is, you know, there's that 10,000 hours. I, I worked for my 20s. I worked full-time as a freelancer and on side jobs, shooting bat mitzvahs and weddings and, um, you know, other things that I had no idea what I was shooting. Um, and, 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 and so my 20s were awful. Uh, and then my 30s, I finally, you know, when we sold Pawn Stars, um, things started to kind of go in a better direction. But I would say that's kind of like all the brick lane that, you know, um, you know, I don't really talk about that much, but, but then I think it was always hiring people who are smarter than me, um, and in different aspects of what we're trying to do. And so these team of experts, team of rivals, and, 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 and when we do make big decisions, I always try to bring the team together and get buy-in from everybody, you know, because, you know, not to go back to the rowing thing, but, you know, if we're all rowing in the same direction, in normal life, it makes all the difference. In COVID life, it, it's the only way to do it. So that's, that's I think, a, a long-winded answer. But. No, thank you. I, it's, you know, the, the, this whole business would not revolve without people such as yourself that say, I can do this. Whether it's a film, a company, a building, uh, I, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to kind of talk us through talk us through your thought process and your building process. And, you know, certainly best of luck to you with all the various ventures. We'll keep, uh, we'll keep an eye on uh, everything going on at Wheelhouse and just really appreciate you taking the time to talk us through it all. Thanks for listening. Be sure to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts 
We love to hear from listeners. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. (laughs)